If you haven't already, please turn to James chapter 5, starting in uh, verse 13. So we've now come to the end of the book of James. Throughout, James has been painting us a picture of what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ, a genuine Christian. This has been uh, an interesting book to look at, um, one I'll be sad to leave behind, but I have heard, I heard one pastor say that he was glad James didn't have a sixth chapter because the first five chapters had pretty much kicked his booty the entire time. And so he was glad that there was not a sixth chapter. He wasn't sure he could handle it. I'm not so sure I would like to take that and, and agree with him or disagree, but James has been very um, powerful, I know, in my life, and I pray in yours as well. James has been all about not just right thinking and right belief, but right actions in response to belief. It's not enough to just have some loyalty to God and some loyalty to something else. We must have undivided loyalty. We must have a soul devotion to the Lord of the universe. And that's what James is bringing out. And that's what we're going to see here today as we round out the book. Today, as we look at it, we're going to see that James is going to talk about two topics, prayer and community. And really, honestly, these two topics are throughout the book of James. So it's actually pretty nice that we're finishing here because we get to kind of summarize what the entirety of the book has already covered. It's really a reflection of the whole book. So here's our big idea. The genuine Christian has a singular devotion to the Lord and sees his guiding hand behind everything have a singular devotion, as in, this is the only thing that I devote myself to. And as I devote myself to him, I see that everything in my life is being guided by his hand. We saw this a few weeks ago when we talked about providence, about how God guides everything. We saw this in in our very first sermon together on this, when we talked about having joy in trials. You can't have joy in trials if your trials and this life is all you focus on. So as we look at what a genuine Christian does, we're going to see some evidences of this genuineness. We're going to see it through response to suffering, response to joy, and response to sickness. We're going to see the response that we do to those things and how we react show whether our faith is genuine. We also see at the end of this a call to community. A call to community that is even more intense than the traditional call to Christian community, which is to love your neighbor as yourself and to gather together to celebrate the coming of the Lord. But there's more to it than that. So the first portion we're going to look at is prayer. And James is very passionate about prayer. He's very precise in his wording about prayer. Throughout the book of James, we've seen discussion of prayer. And actually, probably even more so, even as I say that, and I say, well, James is all about prayer, it's actually even more about the power of God. See, James does not tell us, here are the magic words we must say in order to get God to do what we want him to do. Instead, it's this continual communication with the God who is the source of power. I'm reminded of a line from Huckleberry Finn which kids used to be allowed to read in high school, um, but not so much anymore. In Huckleberry Finn, there's a portion where Huck Finn is, is told to pray, and he tries it on, and he says, I prayed for all these things that I wanted, but I didn't get any of my prayers answered. So he says, there ain't nothing in prayer, meaning there's no power in prayer. Huckleberry Finn said that because he was praying for things that were 
ridiculous, but yet didn't get them. And if Huckleberry fins this idea of, hey, you know, there's nothing in prayer, then it leads to the next step, which is if there's no power in prayer, it's because there's no one we're praying to. And that's the conclusion that Huck Finn is pointing towards. And that's what James is rebelling against here. He's saying, no, no, there is a God and there is power. And that's where we need to look, not to the words that we say, but to the one who is the power. So James is pushing against this and saying, are you the genuine article? Are you a believer who believes in this Lord? Because if there is a God, and there is, and he is who he claims to be, then nothing makes more sense than to pray to him and pray to him and pray some more. Even when we don't get what we think we want, we are to pray to him. So the first mark of the genuine Christian, and we see this in verses 13 and 14, is the genuine Christian takes the good and the bad to the Lord in prayer. The genuine Christian takes the good things that happen in their life and the bad things that happen in their life, and they take them to the Lord in prayer. And we see this in verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So James doesn't see prayer as a passive last resort type thing. James sees prayer as revolutionary. That's where you go first recognizing that on top of everything is the God of the universe who answers prayers. F.B. Meyer says, the great tragedy of the Christian life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayers. Another quote, if we spent as much time praying as we do grumbling, we would soon have nothing to grumble about. See, James's commands are for believers to pray in all situations, all emotions, all parts of life. Because there's a reason why it's in sickness and in health in a wedding, because that covers all of it, right? So in sickness and in cheerfulness is all of life. So James is saying all of life requires prayer. And we see the connection in James 1, where it says, count it all joy when we face trials. See, James is saying, in suffering, in cheerfulness, in sickness, we are to sing praise. We're to call on the Lord in prayer. See, don't get hung up on the fact that it says sing praises, because ultimately, praising is a form of prayer. Yeah, we think of it, and it's like, well, but this is just us singing songs before the service. Actually, when we are singing these songs, this is a form of prayer. It's a form of offering up true words about the Lord. Not a lot of our songs that we sing are calling on God to right a wrong or something like that. But if you look at the Psalms, about one third of them are calling on God to do something. Most of the songs we sing are, are simply telling God how great he is. And a lot of times it's getting our hearts right for what the Lord's about to do in the service. And so that praise and prayer go together perfectly. So stuff is happening What's our response to be? Well, our response is to be prayer and praise. So how do we pray? Well, you know, James has kind of added in all these directions on how to pray throughout the book of James. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to show you just in chapter one, we see five different things that we are to pray about. James one, verse two, we are to pray that we can count it all joy when we face trials. James one, five, we're to pray and ask for wisdom. That comes down from above. 
James 1.12, we're to pray that we are able to endure with patience. James 1.13-16, we're to pray that we can recognize temptation for what it is. James 1.17, we should pray that the Lord will sustain us and strengthen us. And it's so throughout the book of James, and we don't have time to go through every single one, even though I encourage you to do that on your own, James is telling us, pray, pray, pray. James also cautions us, as he did in James 4, when he says, you do not have because you do not ask. That's prayer. You don't have because you're not praying. And when you do ask, you do not receive it because you are going to spend it on your passions. You want to spend it on the things that you want, not what God wants. So ultimately, prayer is something that we are called to do and we need to be doing. So let's look at these three times we're to pray. Suffering. Now, this suffering word is not tied to a certain kind. It's not tied to just physical or just emotional. It's actually a kind of a catch-all term. Anytime something's not going as you would think it should, you are to pray. You're to take it to the Lord. So when things are not going well, we pray. Physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally. And then in cheerful, when you're happy, when you're cheerful, we're to praise. And this is a form of prayer. Because when we praise God for the things he's given us, we acknowledge that he is the source of our blessings. Remember, all good things come down from the Lord of lights, the giver of all good gifts. We also, when we praise God, we recognize that the gifts are not God. They are simply a gift from God. So it takes us away from idolatry. Let him sing praise. This is in the present tense in the Greek, which means it's a command, an imperative. It says, do this. So how many of us do that? When something good happens, do the first thing we do, do we, oh yes, I did that. Or do we praise the Lord? Do we thank him? That's a hard thing to do because everything else in our world seems to say, well, you earned it, you deserve it. When in actuality, we deserve nothing. And everything is a gift. And then we get to the third one, which is a little bit, this is where it gets a little interesting. It says sick. When a person is sick. Now notice it does not tell the sick person to pray. It tells the sick person to call the elders. And the reason for this is this is not a simple, oh, I don't feel very well today. This is a serious situation. Now look in the, in the passage here, you can see it. First of all, the elders are called to go to the sick person. So this means the sick person cannot bring themselves to the elders. Secondly, the elders do all the praying. Makes you wonder if the sick person is not able to or not wanting to. In verse 15, the word used there for the one who is sick is worn out or exhausted. So this person is worn out and exhausted. Also, the faith that we see prayed by, the prayer of faith is the prayer of the elders' faith. And then when we hear that pray over, you know, we kind of think of maybe a theological, like, I'm praying over you. But literally, it means to be above the person as you're praying. So this person is most likely bedridden, exhausted, not able to take care of themselves, and needs serious prayer. So they call the elders. Now, who are the elders? Well, the elders are the pastors and the overseers in a church. They're known for their wisdom, their maturity, and they are a part of the leadership at the church. So why not call a doctor? Why not call a doctor and then also call the elders? Well, first of all, this passage does not imply that we're not to ever call doctors. It's not to say only work with elders, but never work with doctors. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, 
we have two books written by a doctor, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, Paul himself talks about how he likes Luke being with him. And Paul gives some maybe kind of not doctorly advice, but yet medical advice, and he tells Timothy to take care of his stomach in 1 Timothy 5.13. So this is not saying you call and pray with the elders or you go see a doctor. It's saying we need to understand that above everything, whether it's medicine from a doctor or elders praying, it is God who does the healing. It is God who heals. God is overall, the great physician is the one who holds us all in his hands, and he decides who gets healed and who doesn't. Then we see this passage about, in this passage about anointing with oil. This is not medicinal, nor is it sacramental. Instead, this is a symbol. This is simply saying we are setting this person apart for God's special viewing, some special attention. That's all it is. It is not a magic potion. This idea of anointing with oil is only used one other time involved with healings, and it's from Mark 6.13. So what we see is we see there are many healings in the Bible without oil, and there are healings with oil. So what that tells us is it depends. It depends. This isn't some kind of magic potion that we automatically do and click, therefore our healing is done. One commentator writes, James would be recommending that the elders anoint the sick person in order to vividly show that that person is set apart for God's special attention. Note how many other healings did not include anointing, so this is not required nor mandated, but it could be necessary. And then look at the very end of 14. It says, anoint in the name of the Lord. James can't help himself. He, had, he points right back to it. He says, it's not the oil. It's not the elders. It's not the pastors. It's the God of the universe. The, war, the name of the Lord, which means in his power, he is the one who heals. He is the one who brings the healing. And now we move to verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This prayer of faith, the way it's worded, is connected back to the elders. It's the elders who are praying. It's their prayer of faith that is over this sick person. Now, I mean, in this passage, we see no requirements of the sick person. Sick person doesn't have to pray. The sick person doesn't have to go to church. The sick person doesn't have to have X amount of faith in order to be, be saved or be healed. Instead, it's the elder's faith. It's the bringing up of the promises that God has. And these elders are to do that. They're to bring that up. Spurgeon writes, Unbelieving prayers, shall I call them prayers? Prayers without faith? They are birds without wings, ships without sails, beasts without legs. Prayers that have no faith in Christ are prayers without the blood on them. They are deeds without signature, without seal, without stamp. They are impotent, illegal documents. So again, it's not the amount of faith that the elders have. It's the object of faith. It's the object of faith that saves. It's not the words. And faith in God saves. The oil has no power. And we see that. I mean, he, it, James is making it clear. He doesn't say, and then the oil will raise them up at the second part of that verse. It says, the Lord will raise them up. The Lord is the one that does it. Genuine faith on our part is necessary when we pray. And then 
only then if the Lord wills it. See, we have to be able to, to understand how this all fits together. Because if we take this verse out and we put it over here and we say, if we do A, B, and C, we get this result. But that's not in keeping with the rest of the book of James. So we must find a balance here. God is not going to heal on demand. It's not the way it works here. It's not what's promised here. We must constantly keep in mind what James 1, 5 through 8 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. And when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So that one talks about we must have the right mindset when we pray. But on the other side of it, we see James 4.15 4, that says, instead we ought to say or pray, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So there must constantly be a balancing act between here's what I want and here's what God wants. And we have to constantly keep that in mind. The prayer of faith is best identified as knowledge of God's will for a particular situation with no scriptural guidance is available. Such a knowledge of God's will is often absent, in which case we are still to pray, but we're to pray in a way that, no, that acknowledges God's right to supersede our prayers. So really, this prayer of the elders is a promissory note. It does not necessarily list all of the ways that God could work in different ways, but ultimately we should underlie everything we pray Lord, if it is your will. Remember what John, 1 John 5.14 says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That he hears and he answers and he will respond. So he kind of changes now into verse 15, the second half of verse 15. And it says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there is a component of the sickness and the sins together. And that word if is really good because if that word if was not there, we would think all sicknesses are caused by sin. But James doesn't allow us to go that route. Instead, he says, sometimes you're going to have sicknesses that are caused by sin. Other times, you're just going to have sicknesses that are caused by sickness. So James makes it very clear. Now, Jesus healed both right? He healed the spiritual sickness of our sins, and he healed the physical sicknesses. And James is not teaching that all sicknesses will be healed. Instead, he's teaching that all healing, whether it's spiritual or physical, comes from God. So they call the elders. The calling of the elders shows that this sick person is asking for help. They're contrite. And in, in this is the more important healing, which is spiritual healing which is the confessing of sins, which is making sure you're right with the Lord. I read a story about a guy named George Miller, who was a phenomenal man of prayer. I don't know where he was from or who he is. There is no record of him other than this little quote here. And it said that he would begin praying, and as soon as he started praying for someone, he would start celebrating and praising God for the answer to prayer which would, you know, kind of be an interesting thing, except for he'd been praying for the salvation of his brother for 35 years and had not seen it. But every day as he prayed, he praised the Lord for answering that prayer. And I just, I, I was convicted by the fact for me, it, when I go to pray, do I go, well, God may answer this, but he may not. Why do I not go with, he's going to answer this? 
Where is my faith? Am I praying the prayer of faith? See, faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who accomplishes his will. His will will be done. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly the overriding providence of God in all prayer. A prayer of healing then must be qualified by the recognition that God is supreme and his answer to that prayer is better than what I want that prayer to be answered as. But some will say, wait, but wait a sec, but if we go and we pray over this person and they don't get healed, aren't, aren't they going to think badly of God? Aren't they going to think I'm unspiritual? Are they going to think if, if we round the elders up and we go and we lay hands and we anoint someone and then they die the next day? People aren't going to be offering to want to have the elders pray with us, are they? But we need to remember there have been greater Christians than anyone in this room who've sought healing and have failed. It's better to fail in an attempt to exercise your faith than to not even attempt it at all. See, God never belittles those who follow him, who attempt to follow him but fail. But he does chasten and he calls them out for those who don't even attempt it at all. And so we need to take that prayer and we need to trust the Lord and take it to him in prayer. Whether it's sickness, suffering, or cheerfulness, all of it to him in prayer. Not only does God want us to be healed with him, but also he wants us to be healed within our community. And so in verse 16, we see relational healing is what James is is, is encouraging us. Genuine Christians confess their sins to one another to heal their community. They confess their sins to one another. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, this is like the fourth time James has mentioned the word pray. So we are to pray for each other. We're to confess our sins to each other. Sometimes in our community, we need to confess sins that we've done to each other. And this healing begins at the moment of confession. A Puritan uh, quote from a, a while ago, the way to cover our sin is to uncover it by confession. So we need to understand that confession is not something we're all like lining up and ready to go because we feel like it could be abused. We feel anxious about it. I'm putting myself out there. But honestly, when we are the most vulnerable and we're able to share our feelings, what that actually does is that actually builds community right here in the church. See, it takes work to live in community. It doesn't take work to hide yourself in a corner and not let anybody in. Community involves potentially getting hurt. It also involves you potentially hurting someone else. But true community is not withdrawal. It's not walking away. You don't take the easy road. You take the initiative to build the community. Community doesn't start by just having a building and bringing people in. Community starts by letting down walls and letting people in. The next thing we see in the second part of verse 16 is that genuine Christians understand that prayer has power because of God. So James returns to and kind of summarizes where he's been so far. He says, listen, the the power is in God. The power is in God. He does the work. It's not in us. And he does this. He says it very clearly. The righteous person has great power. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. 
So I saw an example of this that I thought was kind of interesting. WestJet is a, a company that flies people all over the place. I'm not sure what city they're out of, but it's a company that flies people places. And two years ago, they did a Christmas um, advertisement. Um, and what they did was they had a, a box that looked like a big Christmas present right by the gate to the, uh, to the airplanes when they would go out. And so there were two or three airplanes that had this. And on the box was a big television screen. And in the television screen was Santa Claus. And if you came up and you took your boarding pass and you scanned it, and then you stood there, Santa Claus would appear and he would talk to you. It's pretty cool. It's just simply a person sitting in another room with a camera on them. But he would say to each person, what do you want for Christmas? People would say, oh, I want this. And there was all these really cute videos of little kids going, I want an iPad and I want a PlayStation and all that. But there were some adults too. One of the adults walks up and goes, I want a 65-inch television. Another one got up there and said, I could use a new pair of socks. So that was kind of fun. Oh, you know, we got to see Santa Claus. Sweet. All right. What they didn't know was when they got on their airplane and they flew the two hours to their destination, People who work for WestJet went to the store and bought them those presents, wrapped them, put their names on it. And so when they got to go get their luggage, instead of their luggage coming down the conveyor belt, were these presents. I mean, can you imagine a 65-inch television coming down one of those conveyor belts? I mean, our clothes barely, barely survived that, but I don't know how they did that. So all these presents are coming down. And it was, it was sweet. These people are like, oh, where's my luggage? Oh, this is for me. And they unwrap it, and it's the thing they most wanted. Pretty sweet, pretty amazing, except for one person. How dumb do you got to feel that you asked for a pair of socks and you're watching everybody around you get these humongous things, your brand new clothes, a new phone, a, whatever. See, this is what James doesn't want us to do. James doesn't want us to miss the fact that there is power in prayer. All we need to do is we need ask and believe that he will answer. Prayer is real. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. Things actually happen. And I, I, we could go around this room and I'm, I know that there would be hundreds and hundreds of examples of that. So God answers prayer. How foolish are we not to ask him to answer our prayers? How foolish is it to settle for a pair of socks when we could be asking for so much more? Not every one of us can be a theologian, a pastor, or a missionary, but it says every single righteous person. That means every single person who is in Christ has this power. The power is there. It's just not been tapped into. You don't got to be a super saint in order to offer prayers that have power. Instead, you just have to be a humble saint who takes it to the Lord and knows that he is the one that has power. Another quote for you. What can we do without prayer? They link us with the omnipotent God. Like a lightning rod, they pierce the clouds and bring down the mighty and mysterious power from on high. So then James kind of adds in this example, and he uses an example from the Old Testament. He goes to Elijah, and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So my first question was, why Elijah? Because it looks like when he says Elijah was a man like ours, I'm going to go, uh, teacher, he's not exactly like us. 
I, I remember some miracles and some prophecies. And there was this thing about a, a chariot up to heaven in fire. Wait, is that for us? Because I want that. That sounds a lot better than dying. So what is he saying here? Why, why would he use Elijah as an example of someone who has powerful prayers? Of course, Elijah has powerful prayers. He's Elijah, right? Well, there's more to it than that. And I praise God that there is. The first thing we see is that look at what Elijah prayed for. He didn't pray for new socks. He didn't go, you know, God, I could really use a new tunic. Oh yeah, and let's stop the rain for three and a half years. No, he said, Lord, I'm going to pray for what you want to have done. This is not an arbitrary prayer. James is making the statement here. What he's doing is he pulls somebody that everybody would have looked up to. And he says, you guys remember Elijah? Of course you do. You paid attention. He's pretty awesome, but he's pretty awesome because of his prayer. And the reason his prayers were pretty awesome was because of God. Because guess what? This prayer that is mentioned here is not even recorded in the Old Testament. And if you look at the way Elijah prays, Elijah does not do these grandiose, you know, high, high church prayers that take five minutes and are full of these and thous. It's a sentence. Lord, do this. God, do that. That's how Elijah prayed. So it's not, he's this paragon of godly prayers because the prayers to God are what matter, not how you pray them. Not even recorded in the Old Testament. And, and, and we, get a, we get this lost on us a little bit in verse 17 because it says he fervently prayed. Well, the word fervently is actually not in the Greek. Literally what this is, is it says he prayed with prayer. He prayed with prayer. It's like bacon with extra bacon, right? It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to us. And it's, a, it's what's called an idiom. And it, what, it, what it means is it explains that all he did was prayer. That's all he did. He's saying all Elijah did was pray. And that's it. And God answered. See, that is what we are called to do. That's how we can be like Elijah. Because we are all praying to the same God. What made Elijah phenomenal was not Elijah. What made Elijah phenomenal was the God he served. And praise the Lord, it's the same God we serve. But there's more to it than this. And I found this one. I thought this was just like perfect. So when we look at this story that, that Elijah's dealing with, where he, he has the, the rain goes away for three and a half years, this is the story of King Ahab and Israel. And if you remember your, your Old Testament, this is from 1 Kings 17 and 18. This was the time when Israel was kind of taken a little bit from both worlds. They had a little bit of Baal over here and a little bit of, of God over here, and they kind of went back and forth. Listen to this passage from 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. I mean, if that's not directly what we've seen here in James with this double-mindedness, I don't know what is. So the same problem that James is dealing with, with these people in the church that say, well, I'm going to do a little of the world and I'm going to do a little of God and get the best of both worlds. James is going, no, no, that's what Elijah dealt with and the rain was taken away. That's how serious God took it. And so this ties into our last section as we look at this double-minded, this idea of wandering, people that wander from the faith. Because ultimately God is in the business of going after those who wander and bringing them back. So our, our, our last point, genuine Christian, the genuine Christian is a part of a church community who are to pursue those who are wandering. 
that genuine Christian as a part of a church community or a Christian community are to pursue those who are wandering. Now, watch this. This whole section is about community. Now, at first glance, you're kind of like, okay, I can see it at the end, but where is it in this passage? Well, let's start right in the beginning of 13. It says, if anyone among you, so this is saying, if anyone in your group is suffering, pray. Who's to pray? It doesn't say, right? It's if anyone among you, if anyone in your group is struggling, pray. If anyone in your group is suffering, pray. If anyone in your group is sick, call the elders. And these, these, this word, anyone among you, is a Greek word, and it's only used in the Bible right here. It's not used anywhere else. And it means y'all. It means when y'all are together, this is what it is. And then, remember, I've, I've pointed this out to you guys throughout, is that he constantly says, brothers, brothers, brothers. So again, there's, there's this community idea. It's not, hey, brother, you need to do this. Hey, sister, you need to do that. It's brothers. It's everyone. Not only that, but even calling elders presupposes that there's a group together because an elder is a leader of a group. And so this is all about community. This is all about a group. So now the community must look out for one another. And this is a fitting, aim, fitting end to the book of James. James has been all about, here's what you go, need to go do. The book of James has more, uh, has more imperatives in it than any other New Testament book, more commands on what we are to do. And so James finishes with one more command. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now notice here. This is not a job for the elders and the pastors alone. It says, if anyone among you wanders and someone brings it back, this is for the church. We are to chase after and pursue wanderers. After all, we don't want to be like the religious folk in Luke 10 when the Good Samaritan is laying on the side of the road and they walk by and they go, oh, that guy's hurting. Somebody should do something. I got stuff to do, so... We're not to be like that. We are to be the one who goes, that guy's in trouble. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to help him. And what a, what, a, what a privilege we have to help a brother out who has wandered. So here's the motivation and the privilege. The problem, someone wanders from the truth. Wandering from the truth just means not living in accord with the truth. Some of the translations will say stray. These are kind of weakish words. That's not what's being talked about here. It's not just kind of wondering what it would be like to not be a Christian. Instead, this is much more going down a path away from the Lord, facing death. This idea, um, given James's stress on the practical aspects of faith and truth, it seems reasonable to conclude that this is a public falling away, not just a mental problem. This is an actual actions leading away. But the trouble is, is that wandering doesn't necessarily feel very risky, does it? I mean, after all, I'm just being a little adventurous. I just want to explore a little bit. You know, it's fun to get off the beaten path. And this is the way I've lived my whole life. So why not taste what the world has to offer? And ultimately, we don't know we've made a mistake until we look back on it and we see the adventure was in fact folly. See, being double-minded doesn't feel dangerous, does it? 
It's like, well, I'm going to take the best of Christianity, I'm going to take the best of the world, and I'll just get the best life. But ultimately, when you enjoy what the world has to offer, you've lost what God has to offer. Being relevant and enjoying this life is not what we are called to do. In fact, it even seems less dangerous when the people around us are kind of doing that. And, and churches can take on this kind of mindset where there's certain tolerated sins, certain tolerated worldliness, and everybody around you is doing it, so you kind of go, well, well, we all can't be wrong. And what is that? What is that for us as a church? What worldliness are we tolerating that is actually people wandering from us? Our world celebrates and encourages the mixing of all sorts of random ideas together. And no matter how comfortable we feel or how much we think we're missing out or not, we need to understand that we are wandering. When we wander from Christ, we are committing spiritual suicide. We are wandering towards death. And that's what James leads us here. To wander from the truth is to wander from life. So what's the solution? So wandering is a problem. We've seen that. So what's the solution? The solution is someone pursues. This is chases after and brings them back, turns them back. Notice it says, you will save his soul. A timely intervention by you can help bring forgiveness to that person. The person who saves the sinner in this case is the person who restores the fallen. But ultimately, it is God who saves you are just the means. And again, from death. This is possibly physical death, but it's most definitely spiritual death. It is eternal death. With the stakes this high, how would we not chase after a person? We need to quit going, oh, well, they're just a carnal believer. Or, oh, they prayed once and they're saved, but they haven't lived like it in 30 years. Instead, we need to chase after them. This quote was especially powerful. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. So this idea of pursuit is just assumed here. Now it's kind of hidden in our text, but there's no command to pursue. And the reason for that is James says, this is what you do. This is what Christians do. When we're in this group and somebody begins walking away, we go after them. We don't just go, well, okay, that's their choice. No, we pursue. And the command, there is one command here, and it's found at the start of verse 20. It says, let him know. So James is concerned with the only command, the only imperative, the only direction is for us to know that when we pursue someone, that that is the right thing, that that has an eternal reward, that that is going to lead to good things. The commandment is not to go. It's not to pursue. It's not to convince. It's not to argue. Instead, the commandment is to know that your pursuit, your initiative has eternal effect. As far as the covering of multiple sins, that's what love does. First Peter 4, 8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, whose sins are being covered here? Well, obviously, it's the, the one who's wandered away. Their sins are being covered. But it's also, James leaves this kind of ambiguous because we need to remember we're not that different than the wanderer. That it's only by the grace of God that we haven't wandered. 
He has kept us because we are all prone to wander. We are blessed. We also need to remember too that when you pursue someone who is wandering, they are going to sin against you. They are. A soul that is acting out and is pursuing the world's way of doing things is not going to like someone saying, you're wandering, come back. There's going to be sins that are going to be done against you. They will lash out. But James says, know this, it will be eternally worth it. It will be eternally worth it. So community is more important than our comfort. Whatever inconvenience we pursue, we experience in pursuit is worth it, is what James is saying. And what a way to end a book. He says, this is eternal hope. If you invest in our community, if you put yourself out there, you may very well be the agent that God uses to save a fellow believer from hell. What a powerful way to end this book. So throughout the book of James, we have seen these constant testing of our faith. Are we genuine? Are we the real deal? So we need to ask ourselves, what kind of believer am I? Am I genuine? Am I real? We also need to ask, what kind of fellowship are we going to be as a church? Do we care about the eternal salvation of others? Do we care about those who've wandered away? As we finish this letter, we need to not set those thoughts aside as we go into the next book, but instead let them sink down deep inside of us. Because see, the mission of Jesus and the journey to heavenly, the heavenly city can only happen when we take seriously the privilege and obligation to one, pray for each other, and two, pursue those who wander. And as a matter of fact, this is the mission that Jesus is still on, isn't he? When he was here on earth, he prayed for us, John 17. And in Romans 8, 34, it says he is up there in heaven praying right now. The pursuit of those who wander from the truth is the mission Jesus was on when he said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We get to be on mission with our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the many blessings that you've given us. But most of all, thank you that we get to be a part of your family. And if we are in you, Lord, you pray for us, you lift us up, you empower us, you strengthen us. And Lord, I pray that we would not hold that back from those we encounter each and every day. I pray that we would share that. And that, Lord, right now, those who we know who have wandered, that we would pursue them immediately, that we would not wait on it. And Lord, I pray that you would use many of these saints to, to bring those back from the brink so that they would know you and love you again. We look forward to what you're going to do, Lord, in your name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we are going to do communion. Um, we're going to celebrate Jesus's mission. And uh, just a little how-to on your communion. There is a clear level that you should be able to kind of peel up. Go ahead and do that one, the clear cover. That'll get you the, the wafer. And then the thicker one, which is silver for most of you, that one will peel up in just a second to do the, uh, the juice. You're welcome to take your masks off at this point. So this morning, we're going to celebrate the success of Jesus's mission. Jesus left us a celebration, one that's even named after community. 
communion. It is meant to be the hallmark of our community is the gathering for communion. We celebrate and remember the mission of Jesus to rescue us. He came to us to rescue us from our own sin. So it is appropriate to remind ourselves by way of this family meal that we are a community surrounded and following Jesus Christ, just like at that last supper. Now, if you're here and you are exploring Christianity, but haven't trusted Jesus, this is not for you. This is the right place for you, but this is not, you're not a part of the family yet, but you can be. If you're a part of this family, this is a celebration of that family. It's a celebration of this community. So as we take these elements, we remember what the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus' words. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, do in remembrance of me. Now go ahead and open up your fruit of the vine. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus knew that we needed to remember. And so today, as we remember, let's also celebrate. Lord Jesus, as we finish up worshiping you in song, I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. That, Lord, we would celebrate the community that only exists because your son died in our place on that cross. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.